Welcome to Time After Time, a non-sponsored, highly judgmental podcast about time travel and love and friendship and the movies that bring them together into our living rooms. I'm Helena and I'm Paige. And maybe in an alternate timeline, you've already listened to this podcast and you loved it. Let's go. The, the 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 title is too long to make up a song too for it. Long. It was too long for me to even like type it all into this <laughs> caster. It's like Arthur. <laughs> and the folder on my computer is just all the letters. It's like A C Y. Okay, what about this? And I said, Hey, what a wonderful kind of day where you can learn to laugh and play and get, and get along, along with, with each, each other. other. Yes, yes, I get it. Arthur. Arthur. Anyway, welcome back, Time Sluts. This week, we're doing uh, the Connecticut, Connecticut Yankee, Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Court. The only thing that came to my mind because of the word Yankee was, I'm a Yankee doodle dandy, a da da doodle do or die. Oh, that's not bad. Okay. I'm a real alive nephew of my Uncle Sam. Born, Born on the 4th, on the 4th of, of July. July. I mean, it is July 8th, so not far yes, off. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. New York has decided it's still July 4th. There have been fireworks every night till... Sounds, sounds like a delight. Till past midnight. <laughs> days after the holiday. <laughs> the holiday that nobody here actually cares about. Or once. <laughs> right. Just an excuse to make fire. Yeah, I mean, I get it. We all are feeling like we want to burn it all down. So, I wish they would take all their fireworks and go to the Supreme Court and put them in the door, you know? Yeah, there you go. That's the way. Legally speaking, not a suggestion we're making. Just simply a a way that we're riffing. Yes, yes, yes. The end of that sentence was, I wish they would do that in a fun dream I have that I then wake up from. Great, perfect. There you go. You know, mm-hmm. we're as long as we're covered. As long as our lawyers say we're covered, you're our lawyers. I'll check in with the law books on my shelf. Perfect. Okay. Do we want to to start this summary? Yeah, let's do it. In 1912, American blacksmith or smithy Hank Martin, played by Bing Crosby, pays a visit to a medieval English castle. While on the guided tour, he annoys the tour guide by interrupting the spiel and inserting anecdotes and facts that he couldn't possibly know, and which don't actually make sense, like claiming that the 5th century suit of armor was damaged by a bullet and not by an iron-tipped arrow of period. In general, all the guests and tour guides seem very annoyed by him and a bit unsettled, especially when he says things like, I was there, in regards to things that happened approximately 1,400 years ago. As the tour ends, a painting of a woman at medieval garb catches his eye, and we see that he is holding in his hands the absolute door knocker of a ruby necklace that she is wearing in the very old painting. Sentimental violins play to let us know that they were once in love. The tour guide comes over and inexplicably tells him that the lord of the manor would like to see him. Hank goes to Lord Pendragon's bedside, where he is sniffling and sneezing up a storm. Hank starts to tell Lord Pendragon a story. The story of how he came to time travel back to the days... Of Camelot. Cue the the story music. Yes, this is the end of the frame story. Yes, and the start of a new frame story. 
<laughs> it's an ordinary day in Hank Martin's Connecticut blacksmith shop slash auto body. He's trying to pivot, you know? He's diversifying his portfolio. He, you know, we all need to move move with the times. So he's yeah. doing some auto body work as well. Um, he removes a cat from the engine of a car, as one does in an auto body shop, sings some songs with the local children, also as one does, and then he rides off to return a customer's horse. The cat is fine, by the way, and presumably adopted by one of the local children. Fingers crossed. I'm really worried for the cat. <laughs> Unfortunately, a storm blows in while he is riding and he gets knocked out by a falling tree branch. When he wakes up, he is in 6th century England, being confronted by a knight on horseback, calling him Monster. The knight, named Sagramore, decides to take him prisoner and bring him back to the court of King Arthur as a prize. When they arrive in the court, Hank immediately locks eyes with a hot court lady and winks at her. She swoons big time but has to keep singing a song about how she wants someone to love her, as one does. Turns out this is King Arthur's favorite niece, Lady Alessande. Is that how you Alessand. say that? Alessande. Which makes Sandy make even less sense. Okay. <laughs> Turns out this is King Arthur's favorite niece, Lady Alessande, played by Rhonda Fleming. Sir Sagramore makes up an epic story about how Hank is a terrifying ogre with magical powers and Hank is sentenced to be burned at the stake, despite Lady Alessande's protests on his behalf. Sagramore feels guilty about making up a bunch of lies about Hank. So while Hank awaits execution, Sagramore tells him that he could probably get out of it by making some sort of miracle happen. Hank gets an idea, and right before he is burned at the stake, he focuses his pocket watch crystal on the sun and starts a fire, to the shock and awe of all the 6th century folk. King Arthur is impressed and releases him. But Merlin, the court magician, is pissed that there's a new sorcerer in town. In exchange for Hank agreeing not to set everyone on fire, King Arthur agrees to knight him as Sir Boss, give him a blacksmith shop in town, and hold a ball in his honor. Hank gets all dolled up, 6th century style, and goes to the ball. He makes a beeline for Lady Alessande, despite everyone telling him that she is betrothed to Sir Lancelot, who is away on knightly business. He doesn't care about this fact at all, and they dance and apparently fall in love. He declares that he's going to call her Sandy for some reason. Probably because it's really hard to say like Lady Alessand, but... It's not that hard. He could learn her goddamn name. Yeah, that's true. And also, like... If he's so in love with her. Nowhere in her name is there a Sandy. Anyway. And, he, and then he teaches her how to wink. She's bad at it, but she seems very into him. A little while later, Lady Alessand comes to visit him, and he gives her a janky-looking safety pin that he made as a gift. Then Lancelot returns to Camelot because he heard that some asshole named Sir Boss is macking on his girl. He challenges Hank to a jousting match, with the prize being Alison's hand in marriage. Since Hank has no experience jousting, he uses a lasso to pull Lancelot off his horse, humiliating him in the process. Alison is immediately pissed at Hank because she feels that this is a dishonorable way to win. She refuses to marry him. Realizing he needs extra protection from the super buff Lancelot, Hank builds a pistol in his blacksmith shop. That's a very generous reading of why he built a pistol in his blacksmith shop. Oh, I'm curious to hear your reading later. He just was like, I was bored. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was because of, I thought it was explicitly because of Lancelot. I thought he just said like, I have time on my hands, whatever. I mean, maybe. He demonstrates his invention to the local children. Aren't guns fun and exciting, kids? They truly are the future. 
A young peasant girl arrives and begs for Hank's help since her father is dying of the plague. He agrees to help, but when he arrives at her home, the man is already dead. The girl's mother is very funny. And (laughs) just going to throw it here because I don't know what else is going to come up. She puts like a sick burn where he says, I don't want to wake him. And she says, you will not because he is dead. (laughs) I don't think that was meant to be read as funny, but I appreciate that with your sick, sick sense of humor. It made you laugh. Anyway, the girl's mother tells Hank that her sons are also imprisoned for a crime they didn't commit. Life for a peasant is very, is not very nice, apparently. Wow, what a missed opportunity. Life for a peasant is not very pleasant, apparently. No, I know. I, I was I was going to do that, but then I was like, it's too on the nose. Mm, no, I like it. All right, Life for say a peasant it. is not very pleasant. That's a line they would say in the movie. Okay, It, it is kind of. They didn't, but... Hank convinces the king to take a trip in the countryside dressed in peasant clothes so that he can see how his people really live. While the king is away, Merlin and the king's evil niece, Morgan Le Fay, plus additional baddie Sir Logris, plot to usurp the throne. Arthur, Hank, and Sagramore are captured and sold off as slaves to Merlin. Hearing of their capture, Alessand dresses up as a boy and rides to London to help them, but immediately gets herself captured with them because her disguise actually sucks. During an escape attempt, Sagramore kills a guard, and as a result, all of our heroes are sentenced to death. But just before the men are executed, Hank consults his trusty almanac from 1912 and realizes that there is about to be an eclipse. He pretends that he has conjured the eclipse, and everyone is freaked out, so they are released. Hank races to Merlin's tower to save Alessand, who is tied up in the courtyard as a trap. He tries to free her, but is hit on the head by a guard's axe. Before he passes out, he shoots the guard with his pistol. Alessand weeps as he fades out. Back in 1912, Hank finishes the story by telling Lord Pendragon that he woke up back in Connecticut. Lord Pendragon thanks him for the story and then tells him that he should go check out the view from the East Parapet before he goes, and that his niece is often there at this time of day. When Hank arrives there, he spots a young woman. When he sees her face, he realizes she looks exactly like Alessand. Sandy? He exclaims. She looks shocked and says, How did you know my name? But then, winks. The end. Great. This brings us to last from the past. Yeah, I guess we didn't take like a moment in the beginning to be like, and we're back. We're back. <laughs> I guess we should have done that. That's okay. Really taking in they, the they know we're back. Moment. Okay, they can tell. I was just really, you know, rushing through to get to this blast from the past because... I was just excited to find out uh, what I thought of this movie. Yes, that too. Anyway, I told Helena this already. My blast from the past notes are like seven pages long. And I was very conservative. It's going that's got to happen. Yeah, I was very conservative when we get down to some of it. So I'll just say this. There's a lot. There's a lot of info out there on... Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Not necessarily this particular adaptation of it. There's a lot of information though on on it as a as a work of fiction, and there was also a lot of information, biographies and biographies worth out there about its star Bing Crosby. So, you know, it could have been many episodes. So, <laughs> just go with the most interesting stuff. I, I trust you to know what that is. Right. By interesting, I mean interesting to me and you. Yeah. And that's it. Okay. So this movie is based on the 1889 Mark Twain novel called The Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, as are all of the 
other versions of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. I will also say it took me a very long time to find a version of this that we could watch because there are so many versions and I kept encountering the wrong ones. Um, I watched like <laughs> 10 minutes. I sh- I mean, this is on me. Like I should have realized that we were in the 80s instantaneously, but I watched like 10 minutes of a made for television 1980s version before someone mentioned Tom Cruise. And I was like, wait a second. So to be clear, Tom Cruise was not in the movie. Someone just mentioned no, no, no. him as like someone a cultural touchstone. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I should have known from the instant there was like black people in the movie, but well, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. We all make mistakes. So yeah, so this is based on a Mark Twain novel. Twain wrote this book as a burlesque of romantic notions of chivalry after being inspired by a dream in which he was a knight himself, severely inconvenienced by the weight and cumbersome nature of his armor. It is a satire of feudalism and monarchy that also celebrates homespun ingenuity and democratic values while questioning the ideals of capitalism and outcomes of the Industrial Revolution. Hmm. I don't know that we like fully captured all of that in this adaptation. We did not, which is why I'm <laughs> telling you. Um, it is among several works by Twain and his contemporaries that mark the transition from the Gilded Age to the progressive era of socioeconomic discourse. And it also is often cited as a formative example of the time tra- travel genre. I mean, it's definitely an example of that. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, I was going to get into this later. We could start with this, though. It is very early. The time machine had not even come out yet. Oh, really? The time machine came out in 1895. Oh, H.G. Wells' okay. story, The Chronic Agronauts, came out the year before this and supposedly, like, has a lot of the same themes as the time machine. It's what he based, I mean, his its own story, but then he he sort of expanded on it in the time machine. Mm-hmm. A year before this was also a time travel work called Looking Backwards by Edward Bellamy that came out, mm-hmm. um, in which the protagonist is put into a hypnosis-induced sleep and wakes up in the year 2000, which is that time travel. Because I will also say, a peek behind the curtain, we were going to do uh, a 1930 movie called Just Imagine for this episode. Which looked absolutely bonkers. Yes. Like, there were aliens, there were there was miniature planes, miniature personal planes that everyone was flying around in. Yeah, it was supposed to be the 1980s. It was made in 1930s, it was supposed to be the 1980s, and everyone, like, couldn't... The government told you who to marry, no one had names, there were, everyone was by... Everyone had was known by a number, which considering it was 1930 foreshadowing but (laughs) regardless I watched the first like 10 minutes of it looked bonkers and then I realized that it wasn't actually time travel the guy from 1930 who was supposedly I thought time traveling to 1980 was actually killed and reincarnated in 1980 which we decided is not a time travel story. If right. there's a zombie love podcast out there that wants to cover this, we'd love to come on and have a reason right. to watch this movie. But for now, we cannot say that it falls into our genre. Right. It would have fallen into a lot of the same tropes, right? He still was like, would have looked around and been like, what is happening? Right. But, but we couldn't talk about the time travel aspect of it. Right. Which, you know, we've been burned before. So, and we didn't want to come back from our big 50th and then our, our, Hiatus. Hiatus, thank you. Uh, from our hiatus with a non-actual time travel movie. But again, it's on YouTube. Would recommend just skipping, you know, do the thing where you like scrub through it a little bit. 
we then we got here and then I spent a long time trying to find this particular version of this movie. So it was a really long night for me, but <laughs> we made it. Anyway, which is all to say that I'm not sure looking backward, I would actually count as time travel, but I would need to know more about it. Okay. But anyway, it's considered, this book is considered the earliest popular work of a modern person suddenly hurled into the past by some force completely beyond their control, stuck there, must make the best of it, because if, you know, H.G. Wells' The Time Machine is a very different kind of time travel story where you have control Mm -hmm, over mm -hmm. when and where you go. Yeah, there's intention there. Yeah, so there's a lot of obviously works that came after this so but it is considered like a really seminal time travel literature work so I'm glad we are getting to it we finally got to it the first two thirds plot wise are pretty similar um I imagine they spend a lot more time on the whole like king peasant becoming slaves socioeconomic stuff but like plot wise they hit a lot of the same points Mm -hmm. but the last third is very different i'm gonna read you you from the last the summary of the novel and um we'll see what you think okay i'm ready so they escape from becoming slaves as they do in the movie three years later hank has married sandy and they have a baby while asleep and dreaming Hank says, hello, Central, a reference to calling a 19th century telephone operator. And Sandy believes that the mystic phrase is the name of a former girlfriend or lover. And to please him, she names their child accordingly. So they have a kid named Hello Central. (laughs) (laughs) However, the baby falls critically ill and Hank's doctors advise him to take his family overseas while the baby recovers. In reality, it is a ploy by the Catholic Church to get Hank out of the country and to leave it without effect to leave the country without effective leadership. I guess Hank's in charge now. How did Hank become in charge? I do you want me to hey, read Hank? the whole summary? No, 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 no. Sorry, go on. <laughs> During the weeks that Hank is absent, Arthur discovers Guinevere's infidelity with Lancelot. Oh, Guinevere's in this one. Mm, okay, yeah, I was wondering where she would be. <laughs> that causes a war between Lancelot and Arthur, who's eventually killed by Sir Mordred. Mm-hmm. The church then places the land under interdict, causing all people to break away from Hank and revolt. Hank sees that something is wrong by the lack of trade in the English Channel and returns to Britain to meet with his good friend Clarence, who informs him of the war thus far. As time goes on, Clarence gathers 52 young cadets who are to fight against all of Britain. Hank's band fortifies itself in Merlin's cave with a minefield, electric wire, and gatling guns. The church sends an army of 30,000 knights to attack them, but they are slaughtered by the cadets wielding Hank's modern weaponry. However, Hank's men are now trapped in the cave by a wall of dead bodies and sickened by the miasma bred by thousands of corpses. Hank attempts to go offer aid to any wounded, but is stabbed by the first wounded man he tries to help. He is not seriously injured, but is bedridden. Disease begins to set in. One night, Clarence finds Merlin weaving a spell over Hank, proclaiming that he will sleep for 1,300 years. Merlin begins laughing deliriously, but ends up electrocuting himself on one of the electric wires. Clarence and the others all apparently die from disease in the cave. More than a millennium later, the narrator finishes the manuscript and finds Hank on his deathbed and dreaming about Sandy. He attempts to make one last effect, but dies before he can finish it. Wow. Okay. I think they stopped it at the right point. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that's like the fun musical comedy uh, romantic romp they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Also, like, I don't know. All of that sounds a bit confusing and, like, 
yeah, it definitely turns from like a, a Shakespearean comedy to a uh, a history play. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it's not confusing in the context of like a very large book, but I don't think that Bing Crosby would have done that. No, I agree, and I think the tone I think changes. They, you know, for what they were trying to say, which was clearly not the same thing that Mark Twain was trying to say, I think they right. uh, they accomplished it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think they were like, "Well, we'll throw a like a smidge of social commentary in there, but it'll basically Just a be smidge. like it'll basically be like in the olden days they were bad, huh? It will not be right, and then Mark it'll Twain be immediately intended. undercut by a musical number that yes. uh, says the exact opposite thing. Yeah. Maybe my favorite musical number, though. I mean, yeah, it was a, let's be honest, it was a bop. <laughs> well, more on that later. More on that later. Um, so some other adaptations, like we said many times, Fox did a silent version in 1921. In 1927, the novel was adapted into the musical A Connecticut Yankee by Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart. Oh, Rogers and Hart did a version? Mm-hmm. Fun fact, they wanted to use, they wanted to just, use that music in this, but uh, they could not use the music's original score because it had already been purchased for use in a movie called Words and Music, which was a Richard Rogers tribute. Mm, That's too bad because I bet it's better music than this uh, movie had. This movie had pretty unmemorable songs. Yes. Another fun fact, they really wanted Stub Your Toe on the Moon. They thought that was going to be like the big hit because... Bing Crosby had recently had success with Swingin' on a Star. Oh, yeah, that's that's kind of the same vibe. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, uh, so there was also a 1931 film called A Connecticut Yankee. It was an hour-long radio play in 1947. Then this film. In 1960, there was a television adaptation. In 1970, there was an animated TV special. In 1978, there was an episode of Once Upon a Classic called A Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court, which starred Paul Rudd and Tova Feldsha. Oh, that's fun. It is fun. I didn't read, I read, when I was reading this really quickly and I didn't see the year, I was like, Paul Rudd? And I like went to find it and I was like, where's Paul Rudd in this? It's a different Paul Rudd. Oh. (laughs) It's a different Paul Rudd, guys. He's not, he probably was alive, but like was a very young child. Yeah, I was going to say. The if they were supposed to be together, I'm confused. Um, I'm seeing how when Paul Rudd was born, when when the Paul Rudd we're all thinking of was born, 1969. So he would have been uh, nine. So he could have been like there as one of the kids, but it's yeah, not. but he did not start that. Yeah, he also he's <laughs> not in it at all. Okay, great. It's a different guy named Paul Rudd. <laughs> Although there's all those theories about Paul Rudd not aging, so like maybe <laughs> that's it's, true. You know, yeah. There was also a 1978 Disney film called Unidentified Flying Oddball, which was also known as A Spaceman in King Arthur's Court. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, was that the the little the little spaceman who's like, meet me? He doesn't say meet me, but he says something else. I don't know. He wears a little skirt. I love that guy. I, I don't know. Maybe. I'm not going to look it up. We're just going to okay. leave it at that. <laughs> meet me. The TV series The Transformers had a an episode called a Decepticon radar in King Arthur's court <laughs> that had a bunch of Autobots and Decepticons sent back to the Middle Ages. Wow, we're really we're really getting a, a little <laughs> wide here, aren't we? 
1988, the Soviet variation called New Adventures of a Yankee King Arthur's Court appeared. I love that. Wow. Sorry. All I could think about was the New Adventures of Old Christine. So I'm just like <laughs> imagining. I'm just imagining Julia Louis-Dreyfus being like, what's in happening here? <laughs> in a Soviet version of this movie. That sounds perfect. I would I would pay money for that. Uh, and then there was the 1989 television film, which is, I believe, the one I watched 10 minutes of. Got it. Um, in 1987, Disney paid homage to the story in an episode of DuckTales, in which uh, Yiddo builds a time machine and flees the modern age for the time of King Arthur, taking Huey, Dewey, and Louie along for the adventure. Oh my god, I love that. That sounds really fun. There was also a 1979 Bugs Bunny special, A Connecticut Rabbit in King Arthur's Court. <laughs> A Night for a Day is a 1946 Disney short film starring Goofy that's inspired by the novel. Um, in 1995, Walt Disney Studios adapted the book into the feature film A Kid in King Arthur's Court. I think I watched that in school. I think I did too. In a 1992 cartoon. And in 1998, Disney made another adaptation with Whoopi Goldberg. It was called A Night in Camelot. I don't know. I don't know if, how much is that's Whoopi related. The but night? Whoopi is in there. So Okay. Okay. Felt worth talking about. I will also say um, that Shrek the Third has a lot of these same characters in it. <laughs> this movie I don't think, just made me want to watch Shrek the Third. I don't think that this that Shrek the Third qualifies as an adaptation of uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. No, I think they probably got the characters from just like you know the whole Night of the Round Tables thing generally. But yeah, it, I mean, this movie did make me want to watch that. This movie um, made me want to watch, uh, made me want to listen to the music from Camelot, obviously. And then it also made me want to watch A Knight's Tale, the jousting scene. Have you watched, have you seen A Knight's Tale? I have not. Oh, it's a good watch. You should watch it. Heath Ledger, he's very handsome. He's very handsome. Anyway, I'll, back to this movie we actually watched instead of all the ones that made us want to watch. Um, <laughs> So the film opened on April 7th, 1949 at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, and together with the Music Hall's annual Easter pageant and stage show, this is April 7th, generated the Music Hall's biggest four-day Easter gross at the time. Wow. The following week, with children out of school and the theater opening at 7.45 a.m. to enable six showings a day, it grossed a Music Hall record $170,000 and became the number one film in the United States. 7.45 a.m. Um, that is when I want to see uh, a musical, personally. To be, I mean, here's the thing. If I have, like, a seven-year-old who is up at yeah, 7.45 a.m., I'm fair. like, great, let's go. I'll go nap in the theater. Let's go. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Contemporary reviews praised Crosby's performance, but had mixed assessments about other aspects of the film. Some uh, reviews from the time included the New York Times saying that it was reliable humor. Um, Bing did a great job, had particular charm, uh, delightful personality. Bing really carried this film. Yeah. To be fair. Uh, Los Angeles Times said that, all in all, I would put this picture well up among Paramount's Crosby features as an effort to accomplish something different. It is a pleasantly fabulous excursion in, in the dream classification and the cutback to the medieval past is effectively enough introduced in, the, in this adaptation of the Mark Twain story. Variety, on the other hand, was not so enthusiastic. <laughs> uh, they said, picture wears the easy casualness that it's a Crosby trademark, goes about its entertaining at a leisurely pace, and generally comes off satisfactorily. It's not high comedy, and there's little swashbuckling. 
Uh, Richard Elko of the Washington Post wrote that the idea was so promising that it's a shame the picture collapses, explaining... This is really great, right? This is what he says. The early half of the picture accepts Bing's particular brand of easy charm, dot, dot, dot. But social welfare work among the downtrodden peasantry hardly fits into my idea of cheerful musical comedy. So he was like, <laughs> he was like that like two seconds of uh, social commentary they did. <laughs> Hate didn't it. like it. Hated Keep it. Keep your politics out of my musical theater, okay? Art is not political. And the movie currently only has 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, I wouldn't say that this is, like, one of the greats of the musical comedy genre. I think it's fine, and mm-hmm. Bing was pleasant enough to watch, but as a as a musical comedy, classic musical comedy connoisseur, I right. see why this is not held up among uh, the that sort of, uh, you know, the singing in the rains and the Wizard yes. of Oz and all of all of those, you know? Yes, but uh, I will counter with, in 2008, the American Film Institute nominated this film for its top 10 fantasy films list. Why? I don't know. There's a lot of other films out there. I'm curious what other movies are on this list. Yeah. Okay, it's not on this list. I guess they they nominated it. (laughs) Shortlisted. Shortlisted. It's not on this list. Uh, I will tell you that at least one other film that we have watched is on this list. What is it? Guess. Is it Shrek the Third? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That would make this a valid list, but no. No. Okay, then I don't know. What is it? Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Oh, Shrek is on its uh, top 10 animation list, though. Well, that's great. And I agree with that. (laughs) Let's see if there's any other movies we've we've done before that are on any of these lists. It's interesting they have both fantasy and science fiction. I feel like those are two different things. Yeah, I would have counted Groundhog Day as science fiction. Well, I guess there's no actual science. I don't know. Yeah, it is in a in an interesting middle place. That's true. This one was nominated for the fantasy list, though. Yes. Yeah. Back to the Future is on the science fiction list. That makes sense. Anyway. All right, we're moving along. Yeah. <laughs> so, both with Rhonda Fleming and Bing Crosby, they both had, had pretty great I mean, Bing Crosby obviously had a, a very well-known career. Rhonda Fleming had a very solid career. She uh, acted in more than 40 films. She was renowned as one of the most glamorous actresses of the day. She was very glamorous in this film. Also, if you just Google her and look at her Wikipedia picture. Glamorous? Very glamorous. Let's yeah. see. Oh, yes. Very glamorous. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they nicknamed her the Queen of Technicolor. So I was more interested in... The rich text that is her <laughs> personal life section on Wikipedia. So in 1964, Fleming spoke at the Project Prayer Rally. The gathering was people who were mad about the Supreme Court decisions that struck down mandatory school prayer oh. as conflicting with the Establishment Clause. She sounds good. Sounds like she's on our side. She declared, Project Prayer is hoping to clarify the First Amendment to the Constitution and reverse the present trend away from God. Cool. Thanks, Rhonda. Mm-hmm. And the next sentence in her personal life section, Fleming was married six times. <laughs> <laughs> and divorced four, I will say. Oh, so only two. So two of them died or. Yes. Okay. Two of them died. She's divorced. Four she times. could do like a full divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, <laughs> yes, survived. Sex. 
Six, the Rhonda Fleming version. <laughs> oh my God, I want it. <laughs> She's like, mandatory prayer, yes. Divorce, also, yes. Also, yes. Um, also, later it says she was a Presbyterian, but she may have embraced the Jewish faith of her fifth husband, producer Ted Mann, as she was eventually interned in his plot at the Jewish Hillside Memorial Park. Uh, is that allowed? <laughs> I don't know, especially she had a husband after him. So why did she pick that one to be buried with? There was the only one she truly loved. (laughs) Sorry, that's a six reference. Yet again, a six reference. (laughs) Okay, let's go back to Bing. Okay, great. Thanks for telling me about Rhonda. Yeah. So Bing Crosby, if you haven't heard of him... I, I don't know. I don't know where you are, what you're doing. Who you, you're you, if you haven't heard of him, you know who this dude is. He's the white Christmas dude. Yeah, he's the white Christmas dude. Yeah, you've heard him sing at the holidays, <laughs> at the very least. He was considered the first multimedia star. Uh, he was a leader in record sales, radio ratings, and motion picture grosses from 1926 to 1977. He made over 70 feature films and recorded more than 1,600 songs. That's a lot of songs. He also, Yank Magazine, you should know more about Yank Magazine, (laughs) said said that he was the person who had done the most for the morale of overseas servicemen during World War II. He was a USO guy. Hmm. Um, In 1948, American polls declared him the most admired man alive, ahead of Jackie Robinson and Pope Pius VII. The most admired man alive? Oh my god. Wow. In 1948, Music Digest estimated that his recordings filled more than half of the 80,000 weekly hours allocated to recorded radio music. Uh, He won an Oscar for his performance in Going My Way and then was nominated for its sequel. He's one of only six actors to be nominated twice for playing the same character. Oh, that's cool. In 1963, he received the first Grammy Global Achievement Award, and he has three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Motion picture, radio, and audio. It feels like the Hollywood Walk of Fame should just like put little asterisks next yeah. to your name rather than giving you extra stars. I think like little icons, right? Like if your star yeah. has like a little camera on it or a little microphone. I think they do have that. Like I think the stars do have that. So I don't know why they don't just put them all on the same star. Right. That seems like a waste of space to me, but we can it feels take like it they're up gonna with run out of Hollywood. space. Haven't they already? I don't know. They give, they'll give anybody a star, as we've talked about. It's a money thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a money thing. We've already, we've already. I think we talked about this, death on this in our Shrek episode. Yes, because Shrek, Mike Myers has. Oh no, sorry, no, not no, Mike Myers. Shrek, Shrek. Shrek has a star. <laughs> uh, I forgot about that. Wow, that's going to be a fun fact I pull out. Okay. <laughs> so he's credited as influencing the development of the post World War II recording industry. He saw a demonstration of a reel-to-reel tape recorder and invested $50,000 in a California electronics company to build copies and then persuaded ABC to allow him to tape his his shows. Oh, you know what? I actually did know this. Um, I think Radiolab did a whole episode about it. He is the reason that we got like recorded stuff, essentially. Because yeah. Bing was like, I don't want to work anymore. <laughs> Yeah, he started pre-recording his radio shows. He also helped finance the development of the videotape. He bought television stations, bred racehorses, and co-owned the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball team, during which time the team won two World Series. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, in a lot of stuff. Yes. Then there was, there's many, many pages of his Wikipedia, many biographies on all of breaking all of this down, talking about his career, all his accomplishments. I scrolled right down to the personal life. Yeah, section. of course you did. <laughs> Give us the juice page. Yeah. Again, a rich text. <laughs> Crosby was married twice. His first wife was actress and nightclub singer Dixie Lee. He was married to her from 1930 until her death from ovarian cancer in 1952. They had four sons. There's a movie from 1947 called Smash Up, the story of a woman that is very reputably said to be based on Dixie Lee's life. Did Bing have any involvement with the movie? No. The one sentence Wikipedia line about the movie is that it's a 1947 American drama film with elements of film noir that tells the story of a rising nightclub singer who marries another singer and becomes an alcoholic after sacrificing her career for him. That's like the same, that's like a a gender swapped. um, A star is born. A star is born. Yeah. People have made that comment too. Okay. And apparently during the 30s and 40s, being uh, Crosby's domestic life was dominated by his wife's excessive drinking. Apparently he was also an alcoholic very briefly, but like by 1930s had like sobered up, had like. Cleaned up his act. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he like tried to get her a lot of help with experts and stuff. Later, he was in love with this woman he was having an affair with, Joan Caulfield. While his wife was still alive? Yes. And despite being a Catholic, Crosby was seriously considering divorce in order to marry Caulfield. If only he'd met Rhonda Fleming earlier. <laughs> it could have been like, although I guess she was a pres- Presbyterian. Yeah, I was going to say, she, it's less important. <laughs> Apparently, allegedly, in... Like late 1945, early 1946, Crosby approached Cardinal Francis Spellman and was like, my wife's an alcoholic. I love Joan Caulfield. Can I file a divorce? And Spellman told him, Bing, you are Father O'Malley. I assume a role he's played. Bing, you are Father O'Malley. And under no circumstances can Father O'Malley get a divorce. Apparently, Bing Crosby also talked to his mom about this. And his mom was like, no. This so, is like a real like dark night of the soul situation for Bay. Yeah. So ultimately, Bing Crosby chose to end his relationship with Joan Caulfield and stay with his wife. Well. But I also liked that in this section about this extramarital affair that he was having, apparently it was one of the ways it's been confirmed. Joan Caulfield has also admitted to it mm-hmm. much later, but it was also confirmed by two of Bing Crosby's stalkers. <laughs> Those are good sources. They know what they're talking about. They spent a lot of time. In a recent Crosby biography, Gary Giddens published excerpts from a diary of two sisters, Violet and Mary Barsa, who as young women used to stalk Crosby in New York City. Oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> the document reveals that Crosby was taking Joan Caulfield's dinner, visiting theaters, opera houses. And I think they were pretty openly having this affair. Well, okay, but then and then it says that at their meetings, a third person, on most instances, Caulfield's mother was present. Whoa, like a chaperone. <laughs> a chaperone for your affair. I don't know. Maybe yeah. he and his wife were, like, separated. Or she was just, like, too drunk to notice. I don't know. It, it, it kind of gives me the vibe of, like, we are married in name only sort of right. thing. I think the person who gets the worst end of things here is Joan Caulfield. That's the person I feel the worst for in this story. Yeah, for sure. They were in love, allegedly. So it seems like it was hard for her. Okay. After his wife died, he's probably like, phew. Um, 
<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm sure he had a lot of complicated feelings. Hopefully he worked through it in therapy. Probably not. Yeah. I, I, and I read later, I don't know if I put this in here, but like some of his sons had drinking issues too. And one of the things he used to say to them was like, it killed your mom. Like you should mm-hmm. stop. So yeah. Anyway, this fun fact is the one that I, uh, again, peek behind the curtain, had to text Helena about in the middle of watching the movie. <laughs> so after his wife died, Bing Crosby had some other relationships, uh, including with model Pat Sheehan. And then casually, in parentheses, Wikipedia says, who married his son Dennis in 1958. Insane. Insane. <laughs> Insane. So he was dating this woman who later married his son. So his son married a woman who had dated his father. My God. Do you have any more details about how this went down? Like how? I'm so sorry. But okay. But I asked you this at the time. She was more age appropriate to the son than to Bing. She was like 30 years younger than Bing Crosby. Much more age appropriate with the son. Before we move on to who else Bing Crosby dated. Let's keep talking about Dennis. Um, Dennis Tell us and, more about Dennis. <laughs> Dennis and Pat ended up getting divorced. They were married for like a while and then they got divorced and then he married someone else and then he got divorced from his second wife and then committed suicide. What? A few years after his brother, one of Bing Crosby's other sons, also committed suicide. Oof. So yeah. I feel like the 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 late or the the fifties onward were pretty tough for Bing, huh? Like personally. So the sons committed suicide in nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety one. Oh, okay. Um, so much later. Oh, okay, gotcha. So Bing was probably already dead by then. Oh yeah, he did. He died in nineteen seventy seven. So yeah, yeah his, he was dead by then. Bing Crosby also dated Inger Stevens and Grace Kelly before mm. marrying another actress thirty years younger than him, Catherine Grant. Wow, uh, I'm happy for uh, Grace Kelly that she got to date him and then go on to be a princess. Good for her. Yeah. Anyway, last fun fact. Um, because of his alcohol problem, Crosby told his son, according to biographer Giddens, during an argument about Gary Crosby's drinking, Crosby told his son in anger that smoking marijuana would be better than drinking so much alcohol, adding it killed your mother. And then in 1977, shortly before his death, Crosby told Barbara Walters, that he thought marijuana should be legalized. Huh. All right. Yeah. Okay, Bing. Yeah, so we're an hour in and I'm done. <laughs> Good job. I'm so proud of you. Actually, that's less than I less than I thought it would be. Yeah, because I I was focused. I was you narrowly just focused. Just the facts, ma'am. Just just Well, a lot of rumors, but a some lot facts. of rumors, but sometimes. Ma'am. Cool. Should we move on? Yes, please. Okay. Magic, Magic science, just a dream. So, if you haven't forgotten the what this movie's about, because it's been so long since the summary, uh, here's where we talk about the hows and the whys of the time travel. So, this movie uh, starts with a the time travel starts with a blow to the head. Um, actually, both ends are. Or lightning. The head. I thought it was a. I thought it was about the lightning. There was something about the lightning. Oh, too. see, I interpreted it as like the tree branch hit him on the head. Like the lightning struck the tree. The tree hit him on the head as it fell. And I thought it happened. was lightning based, but either way, I, we may need to go back and watch. It was, it was an act of nature. 
It was an, an active, active major for sure. I, I thought both – I thought it was bookended on either side by a blow to the head. Hmm. I mean, that makes sense. So I think this, the, there's an argument to be made for all three of these categories. <laughs> um, because it, blow to the head, go to sleep, blow to the head, wake up, someone's standing over you. Or like a blow to the head and then you wake up and someone's standing over you. Like that could have been a dream. Except he had the necklace, right. I guess. Well, yeah, there there are some there are some elements here that suggest that it's not just a dream, but it's also like has it has the quality of a dream, which I kind of like. And then there's an argument for magic, but also this movie, and again, I know it's different in the book, but this movie's thesis seems to be like magic is just science that we haven't figured out yet. I think I agree with that. And Merlin seems to be just like a total hack. Yeah, Merlin's a hack and all of the things that Hank does that seem like magic are just scientific discoveries we've made by 1912 that we didn't know about in the 500s. Yes, exactly. Although I will say that like some of his stuff, some of the stuff that he does, I was kind of not sure that they wouldn't actually know about it in 528. Like, Like the matches? No, I don't think they would have matches, but they might not be that surprised by, like, being able to start a fire. I think, like, the um, the glass thing, they might mm-hmm. have that sort of, you know, have focused some sun through a, through a glass at that point. Clear glass was invented by then. I did look it up. Um, so it's possible yeah. that they would have looked at, they would have already known how to do that. Also, they had fire. So, like, yeah, they had so to know how to make afraid fire. Of fire. But they, like striking an automatically striking match i suppose is is the sure, but there you could sort of be like all right you hit wood together quickly enough like i don't know yeah it didn't seem that crazy to me and then also the other thing was the eclipse which i get that it's like you maybe they the general population would not know that an eclipse is coming but like we've known about like astronomy for a really long time and i feel like they probably were able to if not predict eclipses, like at least know that they were happening. You want to know about a controversial rumor about the whole eclipse aspect of this? Yes, of course. I I didn't bring this up initially because I was like, I don't, I don't know what my take on this is, (laughs) but um, um, apparently there's a rumor that the whole eclipse thing, Mark Twain based it off of a story about Christopher Columbus who was like losing, you know, losing the crowd of mm-hmm. the Native Americans um, and was able to predict an eclipse and freak them all out. Oh, mm-hmm. that is, I can, I can see why that's controversial. Yeah. Yeah. So we're just, I'll just, I'm going to put that out there and then I'm going to walk away from it. Well, I, this, this is kind of to my point, which is that like, I, I think that that rumor about, uh, or possibly apocryphal story about Christopher Columbus doesn't really hold a lot of water to me the same way that like the people in 528 in Europe, not knowing what an eclipse is, doesn't hold water to me. Right. So yeah, I think that like the aspect of like, oh, all these things are, all these people, they they don't know anything. They're completely, like, ignorant of everything. Felt a little bit thin to me. Right. It's just interesting that, like, a movie about time travel's thesis seems to be, like, 
magic is just science that they don't understand. So right. it's sort of like, are you just saying that time travel is science that we haven't, I don't know, because a movie about going back to like King Arthur's court would seem to have a sheen of like fantasy and magic. For sure. Yeah. Um, as we've discussed, it was nominated for AFI's <laughs> fantasy list, but the movie in execution seems to want us to believe that it's, it's a, it's a science guy, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think of it that way. It doesn't, it, it does that, but without giving an explanation, any explanation at all for how the time travel actually did happen. Right. But it also seems to suggest that the time travel did happen, that it's not just a dream, because mm-hmm. for there's two things that suggest that the time travel actually happened. The first is obviously the um, necklace, mm-hmm. which is like the, the strongest evidence. And then the second was the moment at the very end. And I want to know your take on this because the woman's name is Sandy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that he meets out on the terrace at the, in the very last moment. And immediately upon meeting her, she winks at him. And mm-hmm. I thought that this was suggesting that she is actually the same person and she is also a time traveler. What did you think? Yeah, I think that's what it's meant to be suggesting, whether or not I believe that that's the case. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> I think that's what it's supposed to be suggesting. I also think it's supposed to be suggesting that Lord Pendragon knows what's going on. Otherwise, what, he just, like, really wants this rando to bone his knees? Like, <laughs> he's like... Yeah, that's a fair point. I thought maybe he was just so charmed by the story. He was like, please, take my niece. Yeah, I mean, I guess he could have been like, oh, Sandy. I know a Sandy. <laughs> But. Yeah, or he could have realized because you know he told Lord Pendragon like about the the picture, the painting in his in his house, and he's like, oh, that looks exactly like my niece Sandy. Right. Uh, I would like to know more about this like line from King Arthur to Lord Pendragon, but that's neither here nor there. Well, I mean, notably, King Arthur never had any children, so it's not an exact line. Right, but Sandy was his niece. So, like, look, King Arthur's niece. So, like, it was just King Arthur's brother who would have needed to have children or right. sister or Sandy So it's not herself. an exact, it's not an exact. Uh, but if Sandy's time traveling, how can she have kids that lead to Sandy, you know? Maybe, maybe the thing is, Sandy is from 1912, like, originally. And then she gets, she is also being sent back. Hmm. And so she's just making, she's making her life as like Alessand and just being like, yes, that's who I am. She somehow like cons her way into this family, which I feel like you could do probably more easily in 528 and be like, oh, I'm your long lost daughter. Oops. You know? And then she's like, just being really convincing. The world's best actress. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is, I think it's one of those open-ended things where it's like, oh, it's, she winked, is, wouldn't it be fun if she is also a time traveler? Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're really trying to give us any sort of concrete answers. I mean, in my, like, romance section, I was talking about how, like, if she's not the, a time traveler, if she is just this... Just some random lady. <laughs> a descendant named Sandy, she's going to spend her whole life trying to compete with this, like, idealized version of a woman that he was with for a week and was never going to see again, you know? Yeah. And she's probably already had to like deal with a lot of her family, like comparing her to that painting. Mm-hmm. Cause she looks exactly like that painting. Right. 
So there's something there. I bet people, I bet she has a complex about it. And maybe we could, there could be like a Dorian Gray style uh, sequel. Also, maybe it's just been passed down in her family for generations, this whole winking thing, right? Like, like the uh, From the year 528. <laughs> yeah. The year 528, Sandy taught her kids how to wink and is like, this is a fun thing we do when we meet people. You have to wink when you meet someone. It doesn't matter if you like them or not. It doesn't mean anything. It's just the thing. And all the women in our gener- and all the women in our family lineage will be named Sandy from here on out. <laughs> yeah. Well, all I could think of at first when I saw her was like, and your great 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 granddaughter <laughs> is pretty fine. Your great 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 granddaughter is pretty fast. <laughs> this is actually a great example of what we discussed at length in our 50th uh, celebration episode when we were talking about the year 3000. This is mm-hmm. about the same amount of time, a little a little more time mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. from the year 2000 to the year 3000. Uh, and we were talking about how like we barely remember anything from a thousand years ago. Your family lineage couldn't be traced, and uh, you it would be way, way, way more than your great, great, great granddaughter. And this movie is sort of like you remember this from fourteen hundred years ago, don't you? <laughs> I mean, part of being like like a noble is being like we yeah. are descended from King Arthur, so and we and we've always lived here, and we're a, a little bit inbred. Yeah, we're a little bit inbred, and that's why we wink all the time. That's why we wink all the time. We can't help it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think this movie may be proving us wrong on our indignation of the year 3000. You know what? You're right. You're right. We take it all back. We're going to have to do a retraction. (laughs) We're really veering around. Yeah, but I, I think the point is that uh, this time travel is unexplained, kind of has elements of all of them. Right. Everything in the movie would suggest that magic isn't real and it's science, but it has a, the sheen of magic and fantasy. Mm-hmm. So, And also, he wakes up as if it was a dream. Right. And also, Liam was doing the thing during this movie that that you know they like to do where they were just like sort of coming in and out and yeah of course <laughs> make comments I'm familiar. and they were like so he's going back in time to a time that didn't happen because <laughs> you know there's sort of some question about how much of the whole arthur and the knights of the round table thing Sure, sure. Yeah, I guess in the universe of this movie and this story, all the Arthur stuff happened. Right. But it is it is notable, like the way like I was doing a little bit of reading into like all the Arthur stuff because I was like, what's what was the deal with Guinevere? I couldn't remember like what happened and all that stuff. She's not in this movie, is she? She's not in this movie. So I was like, where is she? Is she going to like appear at some point? Um, but in this movie, Arthur is like super old and Guinevere yeah. just doesn't seem to exist. And he also like still has a good relationship with Lancelot. Because if you remember in like yes. sort of the, there are a bunch of different versions, but in sort of like the version that has taken hold in our time as popular culture, um, Lancelot and Guinevere uh, fall in love despite Guinevere being married to Arthur and then uh, they're, they, like, run away together. There's this whole thing. And then Arthur ends up, like, 
fighting Lancelot, basically. Like, they're not friends. So, And the Lady of the Lake gives Lancelot a sword? Or Arthur a sword? He's I one don't know. Sword. I don't know where the Lady of the Lake comes in. Or has Arthur pulled the, the sword out of the rock? He pulls the sword out of the rock. The Lady of the Lake does... I think the Lady of the Lake is Lancelot's friend. She gives Lancelot a sword. So she might give him a sword. I don't know. <laughs> but then there's also... The other thing is Morgan Le Fay, uh, who appears in this uh, movie rather ineffectually like she doesn't really get to do anything in this movie which is sad um because she's a really cool like figure um but morgan lefay is like a a fairy uh like sometimes and she's sometimes evil and she's sometimes good like depending on the story um but she's usually um arthur's like half magic magic half sister um rather than another niece which i don't know why they chose to make her another niece in this but because she wasn't old enough to believably be maybe because but it could be like she's a very powerful witch and she doesn't age that's yeah but but this movie doesn't believe in actual witches or wizards mm, right are, okay yeah. so there you go yeah she was just sort of like vaguely evil in this which i i appreciated because it was just like what is who is this person she's like weirdly goth and like is into hearing about people being burned at the stake but like what she was, was her she deal? had a real Lady Macbeth vibe. Yeah, I was into it. Anyway, that's all to say, like, it's sort of interesting in this movie that's very much, like, science. Also, again, even without the time travel would have a, fa- a fantasy sheen on it because we don't know if any of this actually happened. Right. All of these figures are so long ago that we're kind of, they're all mixed up with our folk tales and fairy tales. Right. If they existed at all. Right. Uh, but also we have an example here, which I feel like the last time we had this was the last movie about knights. I mentioned in the in the Knight Before Christmas that <laughs> he not only went forward in time, but also changed places. Like he went from yes, England you're right. to Ohio. And in this case, sort of reverse, Connecticut. He went to from England. Connecticut to England in addition oh my to God. Do you think that that means that the Knight Before Christmas was a bit of a nod to this story? I mean, it seems like every piece of film and television art that was created in the last 100 years is a nod to this story. Yeah, that's <laughs> So fair. let's say yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that um, thread that you just, you just pulled out. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. That's what happens when you've been watching... 51 time travel movies. Actually, only 50. Only 50, that's true. Yeah. Okay, should we move on? Yeah, we're sort of already in this category as as happens. um, As happens. But we're moving to... What what have you done? So here's where we talk about consistency, plot hole issues, any other sort of time travel potpourri we haven't hit on. We are already sort of discussing some of that. My my main consistency thing with this was that Bing accepted that he was in the Knights of the Round Table universe, like, extremely quickly. Like, he was just mm. like, yep, here I am. Yeah, his, and I don't blame Bing for this. I mean, I guess maybe a little bit, but it also was in the writing. But, like, his emotions did not seem to match the stakes ever. Yeah, that, you know what? I think it's I think it is a combo though because Bing is very like just sort of hey cat what's 
what's up? Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of his vibe in general. Yeah, because he also was like, oh, am I going to be burned at the stake? That sucks. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I also noted when we go back to 1912 and he's like, yeah, and then I never saw her again. It also has the tone of like, oh, well. Eh. <laughs> so I noticed that too. He was cracking a lot of jokes. I was like, oh, you're a comedian now, huh? Like you're about <laughs> to be burned at the stake and now you're like. He was just sort of like enjoying enjoying the ride, which I appreciated, but was also like, wouldn't you be like a little more disoriented? He didn't have one of our favorite, he didn't have many moments of one of our favorite things, which is like people discovering the world that they find themselves in. Right. Like a limited edition Red Bull that you can buy that was only available four years ago. What? In um, When We First Met, Adam Devine realizes that he's gone back in time because he goes to buy a Red Bull and they have this oh. like limited edition Red Bull. Oh my God. Wow. What a deep cut reference, Paige. <laughs> because that's one of those, that was one of the, it's a classic moment where he's like, what year is it? Yeah. Yeah. He didn't do that. He was just like, oh, there's, that's weird. There's a guy dressed as a knight and now there's a whole castle. Okay. I guess I'm here. Maybe it's, maybe we're meant to believe it's, it's because he's already like in love, right? Like he sees her as soon as he enters the castle and it's sort mm-hmm. of like, well, now I just want to know more about that lady. I mean, I guess that's fair. Yeah. I just thought, I don't know. I, I, I didn't understand a lot of people's motivations. Uh, <laughs> Saggy yeah. seems like really into being like, this man was a devil and a monster and blah, blah, blah. And then like for no discernible reason, the next day is like, I feel really bad about that, man. I'm sorry. Sorry, dude. Sorry I got you sentenced to death. That was that was my bad. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff where it felt like I think what kept happening in this movie was that they like kept like skipping skipping like uh putting in justifications for things. Right. Like why would the Lord of the Manor want to see the man who was like interrupting the tour? Like he doesn't want that. He's why would he want that? Especially if he's very ill. Yeah, he's very sick. Also, why I, I get that there was like a running gag of the King Arthur being sick and the Lord of the Manor being sick, but I was like, why? Yeah, I feel like that's probably something that is explained better in the book that they were just like, well, we'll do this as a nod. Yeah, you're probably right about that. But yeah, they they didn't they didn't explain things. And I was like, I would just like one line of explanation for any of these things. Yeah. I also felt like Merlin's motivations were not really clear to me. Like, yes. Merlin is not going to, like, suddenly become king if the king is dead. I, I don't know. I guess he could try to seize power. One of my notes in my consistency section is just, why is Merlin such a little bitch? <laughs> because, yeah, it didn't make any sense. I was like, who is this other random guy? Yeah. Is- the third member of, like, the schemers. Who was? We, don't, we have no idea who that guy is. Is, is Merlin and the Lafay like, are they in love? Are they doing, like, a, a Lady Macbeth Macbeth thing? I don't know. That would be cool. I'd be into right. that. Let's watch that movie. I will also say there were some consistency issues I had because this movie was made in the late 1940s, but Bing's character, for, again, no real reason. Like, I don't know why Bing's character couldn't have been just, like, a guy from 1949, but he was right. supposed to be from 1912. So then there were some things where I was like, he's not talking like a guy from 1912. He's talking like a guy from the 1940s. Oh, yeah, for sure. He's talking like Bing Crosby. (laughs) Yeah. I just also was like, the fire would not make me think you're less likely to be working with the devil thing. And like, 
Oh yeah, for sure. I was also sort of like, okay, so they 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 see, think he's a great wizard. They're not going to burn him at the stake. But like twenty minutes later, they're willing to let Lancelot kill him. I guess if it's, I guess because it's within the like uh, bounds of the like chivalrous contract or whatever you know how like there's all these like rules about chivalry like I assume that it has something to do with that I did like how um basically they did a whole airbud thing in the jousting (laughs) scene where he was like do I have to wear the armor and they were like I mean I guess there's nothing in the rules that say you have to wear the armor there's nothing in the rules that says a dog can't play basketball Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually I actually enjoyed that scene. Yeah, me too. A lot. It, like, I thought that was fun. It did make me want to watch Shrek the Third, but I did enjoy it. That was a scene where I wanted to watch A Night's Tale, because there's a lot of jousting in that movie. Yeah, obviously this is not, like, a uh, an accurate depiction of medieval <laughs> times, and we can acknowledge that. But there were some, like, internal uh, uh, inconsistencies that right. were definitely bothersome. The right. other big one for me was the um, painting of Lady Alessand. I had a lot of issues with it. Okay, tell me. I had Number no issues. One, my first issue with the painting of Lady Alessand is that she is supposed to be like a medieval lady. And she has like a full 1950s beat. <laughs> like her makeup is like so aggressively 1950s that it hurts. <laughs> I don't think I like really looked at the painting. I was just like, okay, it just got the necklace. To me, it was just like slapping me across (laughs) the face several times. Like this is, this is 1950s makeup. The other thing is that this would be like early Anglo-Saxon medieval uh, art, right? They didn't know how to paint you where your nose looked right. They like, Hmm. (laughs) like think about the paintings you've seen that are like early medieval art. It's not good. Yeah. Like the painting looked very like photorealistic. And I I understood why they did it that way, obviously, because they wanted to make it clear that it was her. Um, but I just thought it was very funny because it was like so clearly not. It looked like yeah. a it was like a nineteen fifties um, lady being painted in the nineteen or nineteen forties lady being painted in the nineteen forties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But in a way, I loved it. I loved it for that reason. It looked like it looked like a, um, you know, those like paintings on velvet. It looked like that. That was the vibe to me. It's also impressive that it survived that long, not in like a museum. Yeah, situation. just like hanging out in the drafty castle. Yeah. I guess it's sort of a museum. They give tours. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what their conservation team is like. <laughs> I mean, you know, the nice thing about a fantasy world is, like you said, like, you know, we're not expecting an accurate depiction of the 500s, but like maybe the emotions will should match the stakes, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be that that was probably the main the main problem. And the thing was, was I get they were playing with like the musical theater stuff and like it was they were going for like light musical comedy, which I appreciate. But I don't think that that necessarily means that there can be no emotional stakes. And I feel like right. that is where musical theater gets a bad rap. Because people are like, oh, well, if you're just like breaking out into song, it can't be serious or it can't be like, emo- there can't be emotional depth. And that to me is is very sad. People misconstrue that about theater. And it's funny because it's sort of the opposite, right? Like in the modern musical, the whole point is that the songs 
are supposed to give you more of the emotional depth and the point of view of the characters and move the story along. It's not like just breaking out into song to break out into song. Which this movie was. <laughs> right. This movie literally was just break out into song to break out into song. No, none of the songs really made any sense, which was sad because, yeah, it, it's one of those ones where it's like, if this isn't working. Right. It's a, it was a squandered opportunity to use the songs to give us some of the emotional depth and justification that maybe you don't have time to like monologue about, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You had Bing Crosby right there. Right there. Stubbing his toe on the moon. He was going to stub his toe on the moon either way. All right. Moving on. Da, the test of, of time. time. So here's where we talk about the romance aspect. And I lied. I'm not done with my blast from the past. I forgot. I inserted a little bit into both romance and feminism. All right. Let's hear it. Just, it's just a, a comment. It's a comment on the the theme of romance throughout the, the book version of this. Okay. Of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And it says, One frequently overlooked aspect of the book is the emotional intensity felt by Hank towards his family. Wife Sandy and baby Hello Central. <laughs> <laughs> okay, stop laughing because Twain's own son Langdon died of diphtheria at the age of 19 months, which was likely mm. reflected in Hello Central's membranous crope. And then romance related. The last chapters of the book are full of Hank's pronouncements of love culminating in his final delirium where I guess in his sleep, he says an abyss of 13 centuries yawning between me and you is worse than death. Isn't that really beautiful? That's really beautiful. So much better than this, like love once, but love always and forever. I mean, maybe that's from the book too, but like not as beautiful. Yeah. And since we don't have that kind of emotional depth from these two characters together, it doesn't really hit. Right. Yeah, because it's it's love at first sight, and then unlove, and then <laughs> it's love at first sight, and then like not not deepened at all. It's love at first sight, and then he's like, "You love me too," and she's like, "I don't know." She's like, "What is and, love? Baby, yeah. don't hurt me." She's like, kind of. Um, unfortunately, and I think this is partially the writing's fault, but it's also just like the way that nineteen. 19- 40s actresses were taught to emote like she's just like very blank faced sort of the Mm -hmm. whole movie and so I don't get much from her at one point she does give sort of a weird look that I I never was able to understand sort of where it was coming from but I wrote down I was like wait she just gave a look the lady she had a thought (laughs) (laughs) a thought crossed through her brain no don't hurt yourself lady (laughs) yeah i mean there's a lot of and this is also a little bit feminism stuff but there's a lot of he says things like please honey let me do the talking yeah he says that all the time he calls her he calls her honey constantly and you're like and there's something very off-putting about like like, please stop i was just like can you stop winking at her he's doing a lot of winking a lot of just like deciding what their life is gonna be Also, he seems to have decided very quickly that he's going to be in 528 forever. Forever. Because he's like, oh, yeah, like, we'll have have a house together and raise kids and all this stuff. And I'm like, you don't know how you got here and you don't know, like, when you could go back. Like, it could happen at any moment. So why are you ruining your life in the interim? 
yeah, you're just ruining her life and making her all these promises. Also, promises that don't mean anything to her because, again, like, she is from a completely different culture and doesn't know what you're talking about when you say, like, we're going to have a picket fence and a dog and some kids. (laughs) Right. I I was sort of charmed when he sort of releases her when he goes, he goes and he's like, I hope you live happily ever after without me. But then I was like, again, you're making the decisions without her. She already dumped you. Completely making all, trying to make all the decisions without her. It's very upsetting, especially because like she is engaged to someone, even if she doesn't yeah. care about Lance a lot. He's just like, you don't care about him. Yeah. He's like, Wait, well, and also, what? I mean, it's cla- like, this is less like classic, but it was like the, you know, we're going to joust for her hand. She doesn't get to say like, right classic but like the other thing is like in that time her she wouldn't she wouldn't have a say regardless like her parents would be making these decisions who we never meet we never meet her parents but if she was maybe she's like a ward of king arthur he would be the one making the decision and there would be no like question about it also if she's his favorite niece he'd probably just marry her i mean probably I guess the inflection of that should have been like, if she's his favorite niece, he'd probably just marry her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, their love clearly stood the literal test of time, if we're to believe that she and the, both the Sandys are the same, but I didn't I didn't like it. I didn't feel it. I, I just, he was just so condescending and like... Cocky. Yeah. He didn't give her a time to get a word in edgewise. Yeah, because he said... <laughs> Honey, let me do the talking. And then don't try to follow me, please. Just listen. So annoying. Yeah. He just, yeah. I hated it. And also he thought he could like woo her uh, with a safety pin. And apparently she was wooed by it. But I was like, girl, raise your standards. Also, you made a whole gun for yourself. And you only made her her a safety safety pin. pin. (laughs) Yes, I had the same issue. All right, this sort of leads us in. Do you have anything else to say about their love? No, I don't think there's much to say at all. Okay, because we're sort of already talking once again about ladies. ladies did we just, we just time, time travel back, back to the 1950s? 50s. So here's where we talk about all of our feminist issues, which encompasses a lot of um, general social justice issues because feminism is intersectional intersectional um so i did put some more stuff here about the response to the satirical nature of the book so i'm gonna read this and if you think it's boring we can cut it all right great according to the articles that have been written about this that wikipedia is quoting um the book pokes fun at contemporary society keep in mind contemporary society is 1889 (laughs) Right. But the main thrust is the satire of romanticized ideas of chivalry and the idealization of the Middle Ages common in the novels of Sir Walter Scott and other 19th century literature. Twain had a particular dislike for Scott, blaming his kind of romanticizing of battle for the southern states deciding to fight the American Civil War. Hmm. Um, And then there's a quote from Mark Twain where he's basically just saying that, uh, that he created rank and caste and make gentlemen value bogus decorations, like you know being a colonel or a general and all that so he thought that that the way scott romanticized war made him responsible in part for the american civil war that's interesting i mean and i guess that makes the the whole um 
second part of the book where it's all about the wars that they're fighting me being a little more uh... yeah i mean it's also all about like a lot a lot of it is about slavery and the knights having slaves Mm -hmm. his main character has a lot of strongly denunciatory opinions towards the catholic church and the church is seen as an oppressive institution that stifles science and teaches meekness uh, or teaches peasants meekness only as a means of preventing the overthrow of church rule and taxation. And the book contains many depictions and condemnations of the dangers of superstition and the horrors of medieval slavery. And apparently this book showed Twain's growing interest in Georgist economics and social theory, which, which I could look up what this is, but we've spent a lot of time on <laughs> um this stuff already but um but he included illustrations by a georgia's activist so feels like that tracks Mm -hmm. george orwell strongly disapproved of the book oh because he thought that a connecticut yankee king arthur's court was a deliberate flattery of all that is the worst and most vulgar in american life i.e like he was holding up American ways of life and American inventions and institutions that Hank Morgan introduces into sixth century Britain. So I thought that was interesting. George Orwell. I see what you're saying. Not like the book. With the context about like it being more of a commentary on the civil war, I understand more about the title of um, specifying that he's a Yankee. Yeah, that's true. Which I, I never really clocked before. I just thought it was like, we're being, very uh, loquacious in this title. Yeah, that's true. And then George Hardy also notes that the final scenes depict uh, mass cavalry attempting to storm a position defended by wire and machine guns getting massacred, none reaching their objective. Um, and he thought this was supposed to be a chillingly accurate pr- prediction of a typical First World War battle. The modern mm-hmm. soldiers of 1914 with their bayonets had no more chance to win such a fight than Twain's knights. Which, again, this book was written 20 years before World yeah. War I. So, yeah, I just thought, I mean, I think all of it's interesting context. Obviously, like, yeah, you can get, some, you can you can be condemning slavery and the sort of notions of chivalry that led to the, the Civil War while also being a little too American exceptionalist. Like, I think oh, both those things sure. could be true. I mean, and it and it speaks to like the current in this current climate of like uh, blue states being so holier than thou about like mm-hmm. all of their policies, and while ignoring the fact that there are huge systemic issues that they're not taking care of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I just think it's it is it's very interesting do, doing all the speeches after watching this movie because almost none of that comes through from the movie. Like all no, you really get a- from the movie is like. Wow, it was crazy how 1400 years ago they just uh kings were so, you know, didn't treat their their people right. Right. And it's just like an unspecified like didn't treat their people right. Right. Generally, like uh, sort of murkily. Right. Which I guess you can't really get all the way into in a movie, but especially a movie that wants to have this kind of uh tone and songs and songs. But yeah, definitely. Um, they they could have they could have gone a little harder. They yeah. were definitely not going to do the as a big studio movie. They were definitely not going to do the whole uh, critique of the church. That's for sure. For sure. I also, I mean, I even before reading all this, some of my notes were 
when Hank discovers that that woman, those women's sons have been wrongfully imprisoned, he's like, but such things can't be. And I was like, yeah, because in the 1940s, no one ever got punished for a crime they didn't commit. Yeah, completely. Yeah, his sort of... Well, not um, even the 1940s, the 1912s. Yeah. We're not still lynching today. people out here. Yeah. Yeah, no, of course. And he sort of has like an innocence about him around like all these things. And it's like, come right. on, dude. Come on. Right. Again, if you're supposed to be from 1912, like, you know people who owned slaves. Right. And who are still mad about it. Right. Right. So, I just, yeah. So, again, it did read way more 1940s guy going back and being like, slaves? You know what I mean? hmm hmm I also found the, like, slave auction part of it kind of jarring because... Because of the tone of the movie, I was like, wow, they're actually having a slave auction. But also, like, they tried to sort of keep the same tone during the slave auction with people, like, right. making silly bids and things. And, like, they, they did this whole bit where, like, Bing Crosby is very handsome. So they were, like, having all the ladies bid on him. Yeah, it was just, like, a weird vibe. They were like, we're not really sure what to do with this. We don't have a take. One thing that I I think is very funny in all this context is that once they like are wearing their peasant outfits and they're out there, they're like going out on their little peasant adventure. Um, they sing this like very happy song about how peasants do nothing all day. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you guys are really like taking this in. Good job. <laughs> um, yes. It seems that they missed the point of their, uh, of their research excursion. Yeah. Well, and it seems like if, because it seems like if they do actually meet people going through hard times, we don't see it. Right. Right. <laughs> They're just sort of like, wow, isn't it fun to just take a nice walk? Wouldn't it be great to be a peasant and do nothing all day? Yeah. Oh, I also just want to point out, there's a point where there are, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what I'm referring to. Oh, I do. I do. When Lancelot comes to the blacksmith shop, his lance gets stuck mm-hmm. and um, he, Hank and Saggy all have to pull it out together. And it is the most phallic thing <laughs> I've ever seen in my whole life. Because Lancelot's like standing behind them. It's at his crotch level. And then this men are on either side, just like yanking at this long <laughs> thing coming out of Lancelot's crotch. You know, I did not clock that, but I'm really glad you did. And that's feminism. And that's feminism. Let's quickly talk about the gun thing. Yeah, they did a lot of like funny jokes about guns, which feel very bad right now. Yeah, there's an extended sequence of Saggy or Clarence at that point. He's calling Clarence at that point, but the night that becomes Hank's squire. Um, There's an extended sequence because Hank makes the gun, shows the children how it shoots bullets, which, ugh. And then, like, leaves it there and it tells Saggy, like, don't touch it. And, of course, there's – so there's, like, a very extended sequence where Saggy's, like, loads it, like, is looking at it, like, points it at his eye, points it in his mouth, like, is so uncomfortable. And he ends up, like, obviously not hurting himself because, you know, it's a rom- It's a it's comedy. A, it's yeah. a comedy. Although they do kill a guy later. Yeah. <laughs> they just casually kill a guy to escape from jail and then right. move right along. Moving right along. Yeah. The, totally, again, totally doesn't really work. Very confusing. Yeah. Anyway, I just didn't like it. The gun thing. I hate that. 
I think the problem is that this movie desperately wants to be The Wizard of Oz, and it's not. Mm, yes. They're it like, does. how can we be The Wizard of Oz, but also fit into the plot points of this Mark Twain novel that is actually a social commentary? And it doesn't work. <laughs> I thought about the... I was like, is this a... Uh... Some is this a reference to the Wizard of Oz when they the three of them are like skipping down? I thought it might be, song. yeah, yeah. Uh, it looks like they're doing a Gilbert Road thing the way they're yeah. skipping. No, I I think that that's a fair. Uh, we can we can call that a reference at that point. But yes, it was like we are. This is the Wizard of Oz, right? And then all these things that are within the Twain world. And now that you've given me this extra context, I'm like, this was like actual intentional social commentary that Twain was doing and they're like trying to reconcile it and it it can't be reconciled because the Wizard of Oz ultimately is not the same kind of social commentary. Right. And I'm curious if any of the film or TV adaptations have ever handled that part well. Like, you know, the DuckTales, Huey, Louie, and uh, Dewey. Probably Huey, Louie, and Dewey did not guess the, the context. I'm guessing. Um, yeah, and then also, so while he's talking about all these great inventions that are to come, while he's playing with the gun, he says, he's like, you know, the printing press, the sewing machine, bathtubs. And I was like, right. these are all things you could have been inventing instead, instead you of invented the, the gun. gun. Yeah, perfect. Good job, buddy. And like I said, I didn't catch any point where he was like, I'm doing this for protection. I He was just sort of like, it was a thing to do. I, I thought the whole time that he was, he was like, I must invent this because Lancelot's coming for me and he's very bath. I mean, the thing is, is obviously, like in the '40s, because when our the Constitution was written, and well into the late 20th century, not late, well into like the mid 20th century, guns were not automatic rifles and could not do what they do now. Like yep. different context, but different still context. made me very uncomfortable. No, I hated that. Is, is it the best, the best of times, times or the worst of times? times. we talk about if you should watch it, in what context we rate it on our doomsday clock on a scale from noon to midnight. Noon being notoriously gouge your own eyes out before you watch this film because it's so bad. And midnight being notoriously a party in your eyeballs because it's so good. It's been a while, Helena. How'd that feel? Um, It felt really good. I'm glad to hear it again. Um... I'm rushing through it a little bit because my dog apparently needs to pee. So Yeah, it's time. Um, I would rate this one, I would give it like a five, I think. Like it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. But there are yeah. better there are better musical comedies, there are better romances, and there are better time travel movies. If you are a uh, Bing Crosby enthusiast, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps this is for you. But maybe just read that great biography that that yeah, guy just maybe. wrote. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe just watch White Christmas again because it's very good. I'm dreaming. Yes. Moving along, Paige. (laughs) Don't get sucked down that hole. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I thought you would, this seems like the kind of movie you would really enjoy. So. Yeah. It's just, I know that it seems that way, but I do have taste when it comes to musical (laughs) theater is the thing. Fair. So I can identify when a classic musical is not actually good. Okay, fair enough. The thing is, is because I, I mean, I'm sure I can too, but also because classic musical theater is not my like favorite brand of thing, I maybe am a little less discerning. I'm sort of like, 
oh, this is pleasant enough. I'm sure Helena is enjoying it, you know? <laughs> I'm like, to me, the the difference between this and like, uh, I don't know, give me anything. Like a, a good one, like Singing in the Rain? Yeah, like Singing in the Rain. I'm sure the dip, the difference for me is less than the difference for you is. Which is, you know? Huge, yeah. Because right. I, like, I enjoy Singing in the Rain, but I also like, eh, this is, it's fine. It's cute. You're not You're not paying attention to it. It's yeah. not something that like... It's, it's washing captures open. your attention enough to have analysis attached to it right and this also sort of washed over me I will say I was definitely like a little bored by the end it felt very long I did like that they said fun things like zounds <laughs> I thought okay I thought it was funnier than some like modern movies we've watched though like I there did was laugh a lot at certain good, there were good bits there were good bits I liked that he didn't, I liked how he's like, why are we echoing me? The king, that king was Arthur funny. kept doing a bit where he was like, you don't need to echo everything I say. It was very, I thought it was very funny. And again, considering some of the movies we've watched, like especially for the 1940s, like I, I was not expecting to laugh so much. Bing's character was uh, annoying and cocky, but he is pleasant to watch and listen to. And um, yeah, I'm also going to go five. Uh, I think that's, I think that's fair. It's a little long. 4.30. We're going to go 4.30. I thought it was a little long. Um, which, again, considering how much they didn't do any of the third act of the book, makes sense. <laughs> but maybe they should, maybe someone should do like a really good, well done, like prestige miniseries of this book. Honestly, I think that could be really good. Although yeah. the end of the third act of the book does sound kind of nuts. But maybe in context, it would feel less nuts. Yeah. You might be right. I could see it. Prestige yeah. miniseries. Let's let's uh, start pitching it. I know we have so we have so many great ideas here. That oh, we really man. need to. I was pleasantly surprised it was a musical. I didn't expect that because there's no big like a musical. Number. It's just a few Suddenly scenes a in. You start singing. Yeah, yeah. Although you know it's Bing Crosby, so. Well, when I saw Bing, I was like, if they don't let Bing sing, I'm turning it off. If they don't let Bing sing, I'm exiting this window that's playing this movie anyway okay great <laughs> we did it two hours we're back and uh we'll, we'll be, back be back in, in no, no time, time at all, at all.